On behalf of Copeland Financial Ministries, I would like to welcome you to the Advanced Biblically-Based Estate Planning Workshop Series. The presenter, Tom Copeland, is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ who has been called to teach God's Word on finances since 1982. Tom is a chartered professional accountant and the founder and president of Copeland Financial Ministries. Now, here's Tom teaching what the Bible says on estate planning. I'd like to welcome you to the Advanced Biblically-Based Estate Planning Workshop. Uh, This is Session 7. In this session, we're going to be dealing with some comprehensive uh, case studies and and one in particular that's, that's quite comprehensive and complicated, and the second one that's uh, dealing with, uh, the first one's dealing with estate planning, the second one is dealing with uh, retirement planning. So let's get right into the first uh, case study. Uh, Jack and Jill, and as I mentioned before, these names have all been selected at random, so if there's a Jack and Jill couple in the, in the group here, we're not talking to you about you, and the same with the names for the, uh, the boys. Uh, so Jack and Jill are married. They have, uh, they're both 75 years of age. They have five adult children. Jack and Jill have both been Christians for over 60 years. They are seeking God's wisdom and specific direction with respect to planning their estate. The individual circumstances for each of their five sons are very different as demonstrated below. And these are real life sort of situations. You may not have a Jack and Jill that has five sons with all these situations, but every particular situation that you see with each son is actually quite common. They may, you could have a case where they have three sons and they have the, the three issues they're struggling with and then there's a friend has two sons that has the same issues. But this is all real life uh, common stuff. Jake and his wife, here's, the, here's an outline of the five sons. Jake, uh, the oldest son, and his wife both work full-time, earning substantial salaries. They are Christians, but they give less than 1% of their income to God's work. Jake and his wife spend more than they earn, and as a result, they've accumulated significant debt. Jake often asks mom and dad for loans, which are rarely repaid. Roger, the next oldest son, has a learning disability and is unemployable. Roger still lives with his parents. Jack and Jill estimate that it will cost about $20,000 a year net of CPP disability benefits for Roger to live in appropriate accommodation after they die. Caleb and his wife serve as full-time missionaries in a third world country for a Christian missions organization. Generally, they are underfunded, and as a result, their income is very low, even for a third world country. John is single, has a history of being lazy, and is irresponsible with money. Even though he's quite intelligent, he is not retained a good full-time job longer than six months. He often quits or is fired because of absenteeism. Ron has a successful business. Ron and his wife manage money according to biblical principles. Among other things, they have no debt and they give generously to God's work, way beyond 10%. So that's an overview of their five sons. And here's a bit on the finances of, uh, with respect to Jack and Jill. Jack and Jill's major assets with estimated fair market values consist of the following. Their home, $600,000. Their retirement income fund, $600,000. And their personal investments, $600,000. So just to keep it simple, 600 of each, $1.8 million. They're totally debt-free. If you don't have these kinds of assets, don't let that bother you. The concepts and the principles we're talking about are still the same. I am certainly seeing with people in the GTA, um, if they've managed their money well and they die and they got a home that's debt-free, you know it's gonna, that alone is going to be worth a lot of money. And lots of people have um, retirement income funds, RI, RSPs and RIFs that are worth quite a bit of money. And also, even if they don't have investments, often people have insurance that uh, can provide a big chunk of money on, on death. Carrying on with the case study, Jack and Jill's current annual income consists of old age security of $12,000. That's combined. Combined uh, CPP of 15000 a year. 
normal investment income from the personal portfolio of $24,000, income from the retirement income fund of uh, $25,000. So their total gross income is about $76,000 a year. They give $8,000 a year to God's work, and they pay about $8,000 a year in personal taxes for a net cash flow. They have about $60,000 to work with. They only need about $45,000 a year to live on. They're debt-free. They've been managing their money well, and uh, that's all they need to live on. So Jack and Jill are in good health for their age. Remember, they're both 75. Based on actual statistics and family history, it's likely one of them will live, live to be at least 90 years of age. So here's a question. Do you think they should consider giving some of their income and their assets before they die? And if yes, to whom and how much? Provide a reference to Scripture for each point. So this, this is... Uh, this is the challenge. If you can get the answer to this case study, uh, you, you've got a lot of what we've been teach, talking about. So what do you think? Okay, um, I think uh, this is what I had. Jack and Jill should prayerfully consider increasing their financial support for their son Caleb. His support is underfunded. He's a committed Christian. He's building up treasures in heaven. He's working full-time as a minister, uh, missionary. Remember, his, he's underfunded even for a third world country, so his income is very low. I think this would be one good use of Jack and Jill's surplus cash flow of about 15000 a year. Remember, Roger doesn't need it just yet because Roger uh, Roger's living with them still, right? But Roger's going to need it later. He's the disabled one. Jack and Jill should project their future uh, personal needs and those of Roger's to determine if they've crossed the finish line. And if yes, they should prayerfully consider giving some of their capital sooner rather than later. Eli made reference to this. And here's my calculation of uh, have they, this goes back to what we talked about a few sessions ago, have they, do they have more, have they crossed the finish line, do they have more capital than what they really need? So their estimated cash flow is 45000 a year, their tithe and their taxes is 8 plus 8, 16000 a year. I'm adding an extra cushion for extra health care. As people get older, often they have more health care costs. So add in 4000 for that just as an estimate. That means their gross income that they need is about 65000 a year. From their OAS, they're getting, they're getting 12,000 a year. From the CPP, they're getting 15,000. That's a total of 27. So the net that they require from all their investments is about $38,000 a year. If we assume a very uh, conservative rate of 4% return on investment, that means in order to get that 38,000 a year, they would need, if you do the math, they'd need about $950,000 of investments. And of course, what they have between um, their RIF and their investments at the personal level is 600 plus 600, two point, sorry, 1.2 million. So you can see already they have an excess of $250,000, and that's not counting their home. The presumption here is they want, like most couples, to remain in their home, ideally to the day they die. Uh, now often it doesn't happen that way, but they don't want it. They're not ready to sell their home or downsize just yet, and that's fine. But you can still see they have a surplus of about $250,000 and they should prayerfully consider giving a portion of that while they're living. Jack and Jill should communicate to uh, both uh, uh, Jake and John, Jesus' warning that if we're not faithful with what God has entrusted to us, there's a risk God could take it away. If you remember, Jack and his wife have high income, and they're spending way more than they should, accumulating debt. They borrow money from mom and dad from time to time, rarely pay it back. And, and if you remember John, he's, even though he's very intelligent, he's the lazy one, and he's irresponsible with money, even though he has lots of ability. And, and one of the things they need to warn them is that, hey, if you guys don't smarten up and learn to manage money properly, we're, maybe we're going to give you less in, in, in our estate. 
And uh, also the parents probably need to stop uh, uh, lending money to their son, Jake, who makes a very high income, but clearly is not managing money God's way. And I want to talk about the parable of the ten minus for a minute, because this is a parable that is greatly misunderstood, I find, by many Christians. If you go back to it in Luke chapter 19, uh, the master who is God entrusted ten minus to ten different servants. In other words, one minus to each of ten servants. And then the master returned. This is similar to Matthew 25. Uh, parable of the talents, but uh, it's, it's a little different. The master returned and he made the servants accountable. And if you go through the parable, one servant came and said, Master, here's your, I've earned 10 more. And, and the, the master said, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of 10 cities. And then the second one came and said, hey, master, I've earned, I've earned five more with your mina. And he said, well done, and committed him as well. And he said, take charge of five cities. The third um, servant that came made no effort to invest his master's money. He was lazy. He basically took the money, stuck it in a cloth, and hid it away, and gave it back to his master. And if you actually read the parable, he even insulted God, saying that he reaps what he does not sow and gathers what he does not, where he does not gather seed. It was really quite an insult to the master who is God. And what the master said was, this is what happens. He said, take the miner from him. This is the one that was the poor steward, the bad steward of God's finances. Take the money from him and give it to the one who has 10 minus. And of course, people around would say, but sir, he said, he already has 10. But the master replied, I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. And uh, a lot of people don't understand this, but what Christ is talking about, everyone who has, is referring to everyone who's been a good biblical steward of the money that God has entrusted to them. That's what this is all about. And I've seen this over and over again. In real life, there's not that many Christians that can be entrusted with a lot of money. Uh, but when some are entrusted and they show that they're going to give generously to God's work, they're going to use it right, they're going to use it to buy needs, not wants and desires, I see often where God will just really bless them and give them more. And what the, the application here is that uh, Jack and Jill should warn Jake and John that they may not leave them as much to them as their other children because of their mismanagement of money. And um, that's, that's what the, the principle is here. Sometimes that can act as a real incentive for the, the, the adult sons, Jake and John, to uh, get their act together in terms of finances. But at least let them know that so at least they understand the biblical principle. Okay, now from a biblical perspective, what should be the priorities in Jack and Jill's wills? What do you think should be the priorities? We've sort of alluded to some of them already, but any other comments? Having read the case study, they really need to consider the son that is in service for the Lord. Somehow, and I don't know how they would do that, but certainly so that there's allotment for his ministry. That's an excellent point. So the son that's working full-time as a missionary and it's underfunded, so I think when they go to do their wills, they should allocate a significant portion to him, no question about it. And the neat thing there is they can actually allocate it to the missions organization and save an awful lot of tax as well. Any other priorities you think should be in their wills? Go ahead. I think, Tom, we've talked about uh, setting up trusts and having that available so that uh, even though the parents will no longer be there to support them, that the funds that they have available could be set up in a trust to continue to support them. Excellent. Thank you very much. Excellent comment. Okay, these are good. Let me show you what, what I had. I think uh, one thing they need to do is consider uh, Proverbs 3, 9, and 10, honor the Lord with your wealth with the first fruits of all your crops. 
And uh, so they need to obviously give a portion to God's work. They need to, now maybe that's a, that's, that may have been a presumption that many have made here because of the teaching we've had before, but that, that needs to be something they, they need to consider. I think also providing for the needs of Roger, um, as uh, Rob mentioned, through a trust is really good. And Caleb, I think uh, the best way to deal with Caleb is a donation directly from the Retirement Income Fund to the missions organization. That way uh, you, you save a lot of tax, and I'll give you the numbers in a minute. Any monies that they feel led by the Lord to give to John, which, do you remember, John is the, uh, the lazy one, should be put into a trust or used to buy a charitable gift annuity, because otherwise he's just going to squander it. And probably it makes more sense to give more to Ron, because remember, he's the one that's faithful in managing money God's way, the only one of, of the five, really. And uh, now, now Caleb probably is too, but he's underfunded. But uh, give more to Ron than to Jake, because remember, Jake's a high-income earner, and him and his wife basically spend way more than they should, even though they have very substantial incomes. And they, uh, they have to choose an executor and a trustee carefully, and uh, who do you think's a logical choice? It's Ron. Ron, he's the, the biblical money manager. Have a backup in case something happens to Ron and he can't do it. Are there any other practical estate planning techniques Jack and Jill should consider? And here I'm thinking, anything else they should look at? So these are good comments. Here's what I had. I think they need to obtain some biblical counsel from a Christian and understand God's word on estate planning. There's actually a proverb that says a wise man seeks many counselors. I think they should consider charitable gift annuities. Um, it's even currently for themselves, it saves tax and it gives them a future income stream. They need to do some estate tax planning. And let me give you an idea here of some of the estate tax planning because if they don't do anything, the projected taxes on their terminal tax return, now this is Canadian law, it's uh, on their retirement income fund, uh, about half is going to be taxed at 600000 and that's about $300,000 in tax. These are round numbers, because see what happens, it's all taxed in the, term, the final return of the, the last to die between the spouse, and it generally, well, it, it's going to put people, most of that income is going to be taxed at the top marginal tax rate, which is actually over 50%. I'm rounding it to 50 to keep it simple. On the investments, assume out of the 600,000 of investments that the cost was 400,000, that there's a capital gain of 200,000, and the tax on that round numbers on a capital gain on, on death would be about $50,000. So round numbers, if they do no tax planning, they're going to have about a $350,000 tax bill if they do nothing. The first thing I would do also is allocate $200,000, which is the maximum allowed by CRA, and put it into a registered disability savings plan for disabled Rogers. That alone saves hundred grand in tax. So if you have a disabled child, talk to your financial advisor about uh, a registered disability savings plan and consider... Uh, putting that into, your, um, into the, the, the details of your, your retirement income fund uh, or your RSP, and also, or you can put it in your will. You can do it either as a beneficiary. You can make the beneficiary to your RIF as, um, as, the, um, as basically the registered disability plan or even the, uh, the charitable organization, or you can do it pursuant to your will. They're both optional. The other thing they want, I think they should do is consider allocating 400000 to the missionary organization uh, that uh, Caleb works for as support for Caleb. By the way, that, the 200,000 to the RDSP saves 100 grand in tax. The 400,000 to the missionary organization for Caleb's support uh, saves another 200,000 in tax. To deal with the rest of the tax, if you look at the investments uh, out of 600,000, if they just allocate 100,000 to a charity, that'll eliminate another 50 grand in tax. So the above three allocations is gonna eliminate the tax bill of $350,000 completely. That's good stewardship. The government gets nothing, and there's significant funds still available for the family needs. 
and uh, indirectly the 200 is going to the, the son Roger uh, who's disabled for his benefit and the $400,000 is going to uh, Caleb's benefit through the missions organization. Now to figure out the balance, the balance from the investment, we got 600,000 from the investment, 100 has been remember, donated to a charity to avoid the, um, eliminate the last chunk of tax. That leaves $500,000 left over. If you remember, their home was worth about $600,000, so they have about $1.1 million uh, that's, that's, that's left over. $200,000, I've done some calculation, $200,000 to the RDSP for, for uh, Roger, who's disabled, is not sufficient. So I'm recommending the next thing they do is allocate $200,000 to a trust for the benefit of Roger, as the RDSP is probably not, a, um, is not sufficient. Uh, he has special needs, and obviously Ron should be the, uh, the trustee of that trust. Uh, next, Jack and Jill need to prayerfully discern as to how they should allocate the balance of 900 grand. If you run, run through the numbers, we got $900,000 left over. And this, this is just a suggestion. This is not cast in stone. They have to pray and discern what God wants them to do with the money God's entrusted to them. They could consider giving 300000 to Ron, who's managed money like a biblical steward. They could award, reward his biblical stewardship. That's less than what they're giving to uh, the, the, the Caleb, who's a full-time missionary, and it's also less than what they're allocating for disabled Rogers. And certainly, it's rare that parents would take their kids completely out of a will, but they should allocate, I think it's appropriate to allocate something to their other two sons, uh, uh, Jake and John. Jake's the one that basically spends money irresponsibly, and John's the... Uh, uh, John's the lazy one, allocate something, and I'm just throwing out a number of $50,000 each here, and probably do it uh, by charitable gift annuities, so they can't spend it all at once. Uh, they'll get um, an annuity for the rest of their life. And the charitable gift annuity has the advantage for their tax advantages. And any donations not used in the terminal return can be carried back and used in, in prior returns, or it can be used in the testamentary trust, so it can be made use of. When you do the math, there's $500,000 left over, and I'm suggesting, they give it to God's work. Just, just allocate that balance to the Lord's work. And here's what I, I like about this plan. Now, these numbers are not cast in stone, but I just want you to more or less understand the concepts. That's the most important thing. This plan meets the future needs of Roger and Caleb. They're both uh, looked after. Roger's disabled. Caleb's a full-time missionary. It rewards Ron for his faithful stewardship and provides a life annuity for Jake and John, who are the poor money managers, so they can't squander the money. And perhaps most importantly, in all of this, they're allocating $1 million to God's work, and there's going to be significant re treasures in heaven for their generosity. This is the kind of thing that excites me about estate planning, because most of the time, this does not happen. Let me compare it to what most people do. This is what 90, probably 85% of Christians do, because they don't think about it, and they don't know about these principles. They don't know about the tax laws. What most people do... They don't seek wisdom and direction in estate planning. They prepare their will and they simply allocate their assets equally amongst their children. Here's what's amazing. The government at $350,000, they get the most. Now you may think here, I'm not making the government a beneficiary of my will. I'm not naming them as a beneficiary. They are a beneficiary. Almost always. If you have an RIF or an RSP, if you've got unrealized capital gains, whatever, they're almost always a beneficiary. And I've seen it so many times where the government ends up with more than the actual uh, kids do. And, uh, and in the absence of planning, that's, that's just not good stewardship and it's not a good thing. Because if they, if they do what most people do, the government gets $350,000, that leaves $290,000 for each of the five kids. Disabled Roger and missionary Caleb are both underfunded. John and Jake will likely squander the inheritance within three to five years, which is not consistent with Scripture. 
And God's work gets nothing. There'll be no rewards in heaven for Jack and Jill if they do what most people do. So remember, your will is your last act of stewardship. I think it's, it's the final document that's going to determine uh, where your assets go after you die. And I think it's actually, for many people, is the most important legal document that you ever sign. And one thing they need to do in implementing the estate plan is explain what they're doing to their kids at a conceptual level. You don't have to give them um, numbers, but just explain at conceptual level. Because see, often there's disputes and even legal battles afterwards if there's surprises in the will. Even, let's say one of these sons is not a Christian. Let's say John, the lazy one, is not a Christian. He could easily go and hire a lawyer and, uh, and start arguing that, uh, that he didn't get his fair share of the estate. But if he's been told beforehand, I find 90% of the time there won't be those disputes beforehand. But a lot of times it's, it's, it's a surprise. And of course, Jack and Jill need to see a lawyer to update their wills according to God's estate plan for them. So let me go through the next case study, because uh, this deals with retirement planning. Bob is 62 years of age. Joan is 60 years of age. They're married. They have two grown children. Bob and Joan both become Christians when they're teenagers. Over the past 35 years of marriage, Bob has earned an above average income as Joan and Joan has worked part-time. Bob and Joan plan to retire in three years. To ensure that their finances are in order, they decided to meet for the first time with a financial advisor. Much to their dismay, the financial advisor informed them that they both have to continue working and save several hundred dollars per month for another 14 years before they can uh, afford to retire. Bob and Joan were surprised and disappointed to learn that realistically, they may not be able to retire for 14 years. Upon reflection, they acknowledged that, living, that they did live paycheck to paycheck and habitually carried a significant balance on their credit cards and personal line of credit. In addition, Bob recently had been diagnosed with some certain health issues, which although not life-threatening, the doctor recommended that Bob work part-time. However, Bob knew he must continue to work full-time in order to pay off their debts and save for retirement. So here's the question. First of all, what were the financial mistakes that Bob and Joan made? In other words, what were the biblical principles that they violated? They are violating the principle to save, and even they are spending more than they earn, okay. and that is really affecting their healthy or their financial uh, health situation. Okay. Thank you very much. That's excellent. That's excellent. I think one of the fact that they live paycheck to paycheck, they spend all the regular income, they did not save for future needs. Remember Proverbs 21:20, The wise man saves for the future, but the foolish man spends whatever he gets. They, they're in the foolish category. I've seen the Bob and Joan case study many, many times. I don't know how many times I've sat down with people in their late 50s, early 60s, mid-60s. They think, well, hey, we're going to be 65 in a few years. We're going to retire. And I have to break the bad news to them. You cannot afford to retire. If you retire, you better be prepared to down sell your home and downsize significantly. Maybe you're even going to have to rent, and you're going to have to change your lifestyle significantly and, and downsize. It's... Um, Often people just think it's almost, it just automatically happens, there's going to be enough money there, but people haven't projected uh, what their income is going to be in retirement, and they haven't, they haven't paid off all their debts. I mean, the last thing you want when you go into retirement is debt of any kind. You don't want any debt, because your income is going to drop, and it's going to be hard to, um, to carry debt. And that's why Proverbs 22.7 is the second point. Uh, God warns that we may become a servant to the lender. Bob is a servant to the lender. He has to work another 14 years. Even though he doesn't really have the health, he's got no choice. He's a servant to the lender. Now, this happened over 35 years. They didn't think about it. They probably were never taught God's word on finances, but it's the reality of the situation. Don't think automatically because you turn 65, you're going to have enough money to, uh, to retire. You may not have enough. They didn't save for future needs such as retirement. 
Jesus admonished that in Luke chapter 14. And one key here is they were not content with God's provision as they lived beyond their means. The fact they have debt indicates they were living beyond their means. They were spending more than they were earning and accumulating debt. And in Luke uh, three, chapter 3, verse 14, John the Baptist said, Be content with your pay. And so they weren't. So assuming you're Bob and Joan's financial advisor, what biblically-based financial advice would you give them? What do you think? What would you tell them to do? Go ahead. They need to develop a budget yep. so that they stop spending more than they're making. They, looking at the budget, they need to also reduce all debt because that's just going to be a, yep. a weight uh, at, on them, uh, like an anchor to holding them back. And I think they might have to look at selling their home mm -hmm. and downsizing right now and yep. just both of them together uh, purposely plan for the fact that they, they may have health issues, they may not be able to work another 14 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think they both have to be committed to that. And what I always told my children, if you go to the store and you want to buy something, take time to think, do I really need that yeah. or do I just want it? Yeah. Excellent. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus promised to meet our needs, but not necessarily our wants and desires. And uh, those are excellent answers. I got pray and ask God for his wisdom and his direction. Confess the sin of having violated many biblical financial principles. Regularly study God's word with respect to finances. They, they're in trouble because they've been violating biblical principles unknowingly. Uh, change the way they think about finances. Uh, in order to accomplish some of the things that Kathy's talking about, it's important that they get into God's word and allow God through his word and his spirit to change the way they think. Romans 12.2 says, um, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do you renew your mind? Joshua 1.8 gives the answer. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. God, through his word and his spirit, can change the way people think about and manage money. I'd say that's the number one thing I'm trying to do in this ministry, is change the way people think about and manage money. That's really, if you get the, them to change the way they think about money and material things, they'll manage money differently. And as Kathy mentioned, you need to develop and implement a budget to ensure they're spending less than they earn and generate a surplus to pay down debt. Now here's an interesting question. What do you think will be the impact of Bob and Joan's management of money? What, what kind of an impact will it have on their kids? What do you think? I didn't see the next question coming, but I was going to refer to that from the last one. I think they have to really suck it up and say to their children, we made some big mistakes. We're here now, but we're here now. We're going to try to rectify it. If I was you at your age, this is what I would do, and maybe get into them some basic lessons of giving 10%, saving 10% for long term, and living on their 80%, some basic stuff so that they could share their challenges with their kids so perhaps the kids could have corrective action going forward. And they'd also understand that they've grasped this, they've realized it, and they're going to have some hard times, but they'd maybe understand them, their parents going forward. Excellent. Thank you very much. Let's smack on. If parents teach their kids to save and to give, you, that's two major accomplishments. What do most kids do when they get money? They spend it. They get money, they spend it. So when they get their first job, what do they do? They get money, they spend it. They get their next job, they get money, they get spend it. They go to university or college. Now they don't even have to make money. They got lines of credit, student lines of credit. They got credit cards. They can just spend, spend, spend. And so they get into that mindset. Money's meant to be spent. We just go and enjoy life and worry about 
paying it off later. If you can teach your kids to save and to uh, give, that's a big accomplishment. If you would like to learn more about God's financial wisdom for business, be sure to check out the numerous resources available at copelandfinancialministries.org. Again, copelandfinancialministries.org. Or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter under Bible Finance.